Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 266 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, what the best CEOs do. Achieving Aspirational Performance. You probably know I'm a big fan of the global consulting firm McKinsey. It's the Rolls-Royce of consulting, and along with Boston Consulting Group and Bain, they are collectively known as the MBB firms. I even produced a podcast episode on this a little while ago, episode 220, Management Consultants, Are They Worth It? Some of the most impactful transformation work that I saw in large industrial firms came as a result of McKinsey's involvement. Everything from procurement to capital productivity and operational performance. So I'm a regular consumer of their research papers and articles. Now last year, three McKinsey partners published a book titled CEO Excellence, the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. In putting the book together, they looked across more than 20 years worth of data on 7,800 CEOs from 3,500 public companies. And it wasn't just localised to the US, as a lot of research is. It spanned 70 countries and 24 industries to identify CEOs whose actions have led to breakaway success. They conducted detailed interviews with 67 of these high-performing CEOs and synthesised their findings into the book. These CEOs interviewed include household names like Mary Barra from General Motors, Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan Chase, Herbert Hainer from Adidas, uh, Reed Hastings from Netflix, 
Kaz Hirai from Sony, Satya Nadella from Microsoft. This is the who's who list, right? In today's episode, I take a look at a few of the conclusions that have been drawn in the book and discuss them in the way that hopefully provides an enlightening summary from my humble perspective. I hope that it's going to help you to transition to the most senior ranks of leadership. So I'll start by talking a little bit about the six CEO mindsets. I'll then go on to explore the performance imperative. And I'll finish by looking at some of the more interesting findings from the interviews with the world's top CEOs. So let's get into it. I want to start with a little disclaimer. I'm going to make some comments on the findings of the McKinsey book from my perspective, but I will say without a doubt, these CEOs have a lot more experience than me. They've operated at a much higher level and at much greater scale, and they've delivered sustained performance over time. So don't take my commentary as anything other than a ringing endorsement of their views. My intention is simply to make the findings a little more relatable for those of you who aren't yet running a Microsoft-sized corporation. I also think it's really important to mention one critical flaw in all research of this kind, and that is attribution bias. One of my favourite books is The Halo Effect by Phil Rosenzweig. In The Halo Effect, he debunks a whole lot of so-called management wisdom from classics such as Tom Peters' In Search of Excellence and Jim Collins' Good to Great. Rosenzweig concludes that they're based on misguided thinking and flimsy research. They try to compensate for this fundamental flaw with weight of volume. You know, number of research assistants, the size of the data set. But this does nothing to overcome the inherent flaws. His core assertion is that when you take a successful business and then ask people to retrospectively explain why it was successful, that's always going to be subject to individual bias. People will emphasise things that were front of mind for them. They'll tend to oversimplify a range of highly complex interrelated factors. Now, Rosenzweig isn't saying that there's no merit in the findings, just that they're more a product of storytelling than rigorous research. I think we need to be more aware of the inherent flaws in research methodologies and the fact that the incessant drive for academics to publish new research in order to maintain their reputation, not to mention their funding, can produce some perverse behaviours. Many highly acclaimed research papers have been discredited and retracted. There's a group of statisticians who look for flaws in academic research findings. If you're interested, it's definitely worth checking out their website, Data Collada. Fraud in academic research isn't exactly a new phenomenon, but now a lot more of it's being identified and exposed. In 2002, only 119 academic papers were retracted due to faulty or manipulated data and methodology. In 2022, over 5,500 papers were retracted. Now, if you know me at all, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of irony. One of the most recent takedowns, rich with irony, was the exposure of fated Harvard Business School professor Francesca Gino. The data in her research base was found to have been manipulated and falsified. And the irony? Gino is an expert in morality. Her research seeks to understand and make sense of moral questions like, why do some people lie? What reward drives others to cheat? What factors influence moral behaviour? <laughs> but back to the halo effect. Phil Rosenzweig has five insights in his book to act as a more realistic guide to how real business performance can be achieved. The first is, good strategies involve risk. 
and no strategy is foolproof. The second, execution is uncertain. What works well for one company may not be effective for another company. The third, chance plays a much greater role in success than managers may want to admit. Number four, bad outcomes don't always mean that managers made mistakes. And likewise, favourable outcomes don't necessarily mean that the managers made brilliant decisions. Finally, number five, the best managers act as if chance is irrelevant. Persistence and tenacity are everything. I thought it was important to cover that off, as I suspect McKinsey's research is more about CEO storytelling than rigorous methodology. But even though we can recognise that the interviews with the 67 CEOs are prone to attribution bias, they're as close as we're ever likely to come to getting real insight on performance from some of the best. Something that I found incredibly interesting was the distillation of the six primary CEO accountabilities and the associated mindsets that drive these critical foundations for company performance. The six accountabilities are defined as setting the organisation's direction, aligning the organisation, mobilising the business through its leaders, engaging the board, connecting with stakeholders and managing personal effectiveness. Now, excellent CEOs lead on all six fronts at once, and they act as the integrator across all dimensions. The six corresponding mindsets really bring these accountabilities to life. The first mindset is, set a bold direction for the company by reframing the game, redefining success, and making big moves. The second mindset, when aligning the organisation, treat the soft stuff, culture, talent, and org design, like you would the hard stuff, as elements that can be measured and managed. The third mindset, solve for team psychology by hiring individuals who will constitute a great team. Mindset number four, engage the board by building a foundation of trust with your directors and investing in their knowledge and capabilities. Mindset number five, when setting the organisation's direction, start with why. Why does the company exist? What's its purpose in the world? And finally, mindset number six, manage your own effectiveness, spending time and energy on what only a CEO can do. I really love this description. I used to say that my job as CEO was to set the tone, the pace, and the standard for the company. And whereas all of those elements are captured in the six mindsets, the description is both more complete and more accurate. So thanks very much for that, McKinsey. And as the book notes, there's a tendency for your perspective to be very different once you're in the CEO's chair. People aren't necessarily going to tell you what you need to hear. They're more likely to tell you what you want to hear. And they're more likely to engage in impression management than genuine, robust challenge of where you're taking the company. Being awake to this dynamic is critical in being able to function effectively as a CEO. On the eve of my ascendancy to the CEO role, I got some great advice from a colleague of mine, Michael James, who said, Just remember, Marty, all your jokes are going to be just a little bit funnier now. Two of the common themes in CEO excellence are the need to listen to those around you and the need to think about team more than self. So let's deal first with the listening piece because this is critical. And it goes a lot further than simply listening to the information you're exposed to. In CEO Excellence, a number of CEOs spoke about undertaking a broad-based listening tour when they first took on the role. 
I've got to say, my listening tour at CS Energy went for five years. If you only get your inputs from direct formal channels, like financial reports and performance reviews and what your executive team feeds you, you are going to be ill-informed. There's no doubt about it. I used to regularly visit our operational sites and talk to people at all levels. And there were six levels on average throughout the company. I would listen to everyone's perspective, putting it into the context of the person who was giving it to me. I would calibrate all the information I received and use it to find inconsistencies in the formal information flows. This gave me the ability to be much more judicious in my questioning of my direct reports and others who brought me the sanitised information through the formal hierarchy. I've got to tell you, I developed an awesome bullshit detector. One of the more useful things I did to get myself up to speed was to ask every one of my direct reports to present their portfolio to me on my first week in the job. And I gave them very little guidance on what to present. There was no template. I wanted to see what they thought was important for me to know. Now, to say these were incredibly revealing is an understatement. I worked out where my direct report's focus was. I understood their sense of urgency, or lack thereof. I worked out how they presented key facts and how accurate their commentary was to support those facts. Now, I highly recommend this process when you take on a new leadership role at any level. By the end of your first week, you'll have a pretty good idea of what you're dealing with. The second concept that was a real theme in the book is the need to frame your challenge more around the team and the organisation than yourself. A self-focused view is where you think it's all about me, as opposed to the broader view of the organisation that you're there to serve. The book contrasts and shows how these views differ depending on certain categories that would be key to a CEO's performance. So, for example, in terms of vision, the self-focused view is, what legacy will I leave? Whereas the organisational view is, what organisational purpose do I serve? In terms of leadership, what are my non-negotiable expectations of others? As opposed to, who does the company need me to be? From a team perspective, the self-focused view of, who on my team will complement my weaknesses? Whereas the more organisational view is, what conditions will I need to put in place to maximise my team's success? So, look, I could go on. But I really think there's room and necessity for both viewpoints. Now, let's not be fooled by this noble, altruistic focus of the organisational view. I reckon there's a truckload of virtue signalling in that one. And while it may ultimately be what you want, it's also incredibly important to examine the world from the perspective of self. I've seen a lot of CEOs who simply lack self-awareness. So, for example, who on my team will complement my weaknesses, which is a self-focused view, is actually a really important question to consider. So I'd really encourage you to look at all angles and work out what you need to do to optimise the integration between organisation and self. What's at the heart of exceptional performance? Now, the very first thing for a CEO or any senior executive is to really understand the business and what it needs to move forward. It has to be sustainable and profitable in the long term. So the CEO's preoccupation should be the perpetuation of the organisation. And strangely, in a world where average CEO tenure in Fortune 500 companies is just over five years, this means thinking about where the company will be long after you're gone. This poses some important strategic questions for the CEO. What will you buy and sell? 
Where will you invest differentially? How will you improve productivity? Where will you create more differentiation? How will you reallocate capital? Now, I could talk for hours on each of these, but suffice to say, each is a whole topic that the CEO needs to address, bringing all the expertise and insight of the organisation to bear. One critical factor that was mentioned in the book, but wasn't elevated to the status of the six mindsets, was accountability. Now, as you know, I'm a massive believer in the role of accountability in company performance. It is the key to execution excellence. There's no doubt in my mind. So does the weight of accountability shift for the CEO? As chief executive, you're accountable for everything that happens in that company. Even when it happens as a result of a really poor decision that's made five levels below you at 2.15am on a Tuesday morning. You own it. This is why it's so important to put in place the right leadership and culture so that the right decisions are made when you can't see them being made, because that is most of them. But when I say you're accountable for everything, it goes even further than this. It's not just the decisions that are made in the organisation going forward from the day you commence. It's also everything that happened in the past as well. You own that too. Now, this can be really hard to get your head around. And it's one of the great paradoxes of leadership. The higher up you go, the more accountability you have, but the less direct control you can exert. Let's finish with some key lessons from the world's best CEOs. This is how we're going to achieve aspirational performance. The first is tempo rules. Now, only the CEO can set the tempo for the organisation. And when you first take on a CEO role, you need some early wins. Never underestimate the power of organisational momentum. In my language, it requires a culture of excellence over perfection. And as a CEO who sets the tone, the pace and the standard, I was always unreasonable with timeframes. I just knew that no one would move faster than me. So I had to set the pace and create a vacuum behind me for people to fill. The second big concept is play big ball. I love this concept and the book distills it down into three key elements. The first is time management. Set clear boundaries and stay extremely disciplined. The second is talent. Put A players in critical roles, help B players succeed and move the C players on. The third is operating rhythm. Combine accountability with urgency and targeted coaching. The third big concept is develop dual awareness. This requires a CEO to integrate the concept of both the internal and external environments. It's one of the ways the CEO role differs from any other. Awareness and management of all the stakeholders can put you in some pretty interesting rooms with customers, shareholders, labour unions, suppliers, company directors, regulators, politicians, the, the list goes on. All of these demands have to be balanced with the need to create a high-performance culture that drives the business forward, the focus on internal capability and organisational effectiveness. The next big concept is be adaptable. Now, adaptability allows us to be faster and better at learning, and it orients us toward the opportunities ahead, not just the challenges we're facing. This is an extension of the concept of resilience. Whereas resilience enables you to weather the storm, adaptability lets you thrive through it and create the future. So the book talks about the adaptability paradox. 
This is the concept that when we most need to learn and change, we stick with what we know, often in a way that stifles learning and innovation. This requires a CEO to have a learning mindset under pressure. Now, the book calls for CEOs to demonstrate what they call deliberate calm. I call it grace under pressure. Let's finish with the five tactics the book gives to prepare for an uncertain future. The first is practice well-being as a foundational skill. I suspect we can all take a learning from that. The second is make purpose your North Star and define your personal non-negotiables. The third, experience the world through an adaptability lens, which we've just mentioned. So rather than having a status quo mindset, you need to have an adaptable learning mindset. So rather than a fixed mindset, think about growth. Rather than think about expertise, think about curiosity. Rather than being reactive, think about being creative. Instead of thinking with a scarcity mindset, have an abundance mindset and so forth. The fourth tactic is to build deeper and more diverse connections. And this is absolutely a no regrets move. Some of the hints they give. Pay full attention to the person in front of you. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. Show empathy. Meet others with compassion. They're all the things we know about. The fifth and final tactic, make it safe to learn. So you have to reframe failures. The best way I found to do this was to create really clear boundaries. Here's where you can go. Here's where you can't go. And as long as people were playing inside those boundaries, happy days. If they made mistakes, that was a learning opportunity. If they chose to go off-piste and then screwed up, well, that was going to be a slightly different conversation. But really, as long as people know the rules and know what latitude they have, you're going to get some real creativity and innovation brought forward. There's so much we can learn from CEOs who are at the top of their game. But we all play a slightly different game depending on where we are. And context is everything. What works in one company simply won't work in another. And although each situation is completely unique, there are common patterns that persist. This is why it's so important to be able to learn from past experience and use it to adapt to the future. Instead of discarding the answers that don't fit our narrative and writing them off by saying, oh, well, we're different, think about how you can learn from and adapt the wisdom of others who've gone before. Very few of us are going to end up as CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, but we can all create our own version of CEO excellence. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 266. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you subscribe, more people are going to find us and you'll be doing your part to help us live our purpose. I look forward to next week's episode where I'm going to do another myth buster. Management versus leadership. What's the difference? Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no bullshit leader. <laughs>